welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and wondering why I feel compelled to try and make every avocado pit sprout. I'm Rachel Perkins, <laughs> aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. Your friends don't dance, and if they don't dance, I can probably still be friends with them. <laughs> <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking with April Underwood, product leader and founding partner at Hashtag Angels. Hi, April. Thank you for being on the show. Welcome, April. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so let's uh, dive right in. Tell us about your your long, uh, interesting path and uh, how you got to where you are today. Uh, start as far back as you'd like. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, uh, let's see. Let's start from uh, the early days. Um, so I, um, I I grew up in Texas. Um, I grew up in Amarillo, Texas, which is in the Panhandle, um, which you've probably passed through if you've ever driven across the country on I-40. Many times. If you yeah. have not, you probably have never passed through it. Um, you know, growing <laughs> up there, um, you know, I grew up there and, uh, and, and I will say, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it, it is not and was not a, a tech hub. Um, however, my father teaches, um, he has a, throughout his career taught architecture and taught at the community college there in, um, in Amarillo. And uh, my first computer experience was actually in CAD because the uh, mm-hmm. students were learning how to use CAD and it was um, kind of like a 1984 version of what happens when a kid picks up an iPhone today, which is that I just you know stepped right up to the computer and picked up the mouse and started drawing straight lines. And all of these poor college students who were trying to figure out how to wrap their heads around this new way of working were sort of aghast and and like you know frustrated that it was that it, it seemed so simple for a kid. Um, but my early so my early exposure to computers was really you know kind of born out of the fact that my father was an architect was interested in using um, the latest technologies rather than working on a drafting board, and um, and we ended up getting a home computer. And um, it mm-hmm. sat out in the garage, so I'd sit in the cold winter out in the garage playing on the computer, and was just completely obsessed with it. <laughs> still, still completely obsessed with CAD. Were you just drawing lines all the time out there, or were you doing all of the things? We'd moved on. Um, you know, we we had some really exciting applications like Microsoft Works. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. uh, you, know, you can kill hours with that as a kid, right? Um, uh, so, uh, so there was a spreadsheet application <laughs> as part of that pack, that suite, and this is, of course, like the predecessor to Microsoft Office. Um, and um, and I uh, and I did, you know, strange things like uh, entered all the metadata for my baseball cards into a spreadsheet so that I could sort them and easily find out whether or not I had a particular baseball card because I couldn't, you know, w- wouldn't want to have to go through the efficient inefficiency of actually flipping through my collection um oh, an extensive and, collection i expect <laughs> yes i'm sure it was you know 120 cards or something mm-hmm. um and so yeah um so so you know i i mean there was something about um organizing information but also um about what was possible um with computers that i was really drawn to and i played some games too we had monkey island and a few mm-hmm. other PC games um, from the eighties, um, and yeah, I mean, I I, I really enjoyed it, and um, and one, by the time I was, you know, uh, you know, near the end of elementary school, we had some computers at school, and we had Logo, and I was I was so obsessed with Logo and being able to program these patterns and so forth that I wanted to be able to do it all summer, and um, was really um, really just gutted to find out that you couldn't get Logo on a PC and that we didn't have the money to buy a Mac. Um, and oh, so that was kind yeah. of the end of my programming career was that like devastation <laughs> of not having access to logo um, until really until my senior year of high school when I took a CS class um, and then again shelved it even though I really enjoyed it and went above and beyond in my classwork and would finish my assignments and sit there and do um, narcissistic things like build a, an application to help me calculate my GPA at any given moment. Um, oh yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, well, if I just get an A minus in this class and sort of a B plus, what happens? So, um, uh, yeah. So, but but I, you know, honestly though, I didn't know any other women. I didn't know any other girls that were interested in this stuff, and so it never occurred to me to major in it in college. Um, that it was that my interest in it was above and beyond um, my peers, and that that was something that I should follow. Um, I set it aside and picked the major that I um, 
uh, understood would lead to a career that would make me the most money, which was chemical engineering, and started my degree in college in Austin as a chemical engineering major. Wow, which has been incredibly relevant to the rest of your work experience, right? Yeah, yeah what happened? Well, it didn't last long is what happened. So I got mm-hmm. to I got to Austin and I uh, started attending the, you know, the student organization for chemi majors, um, started getting involved there and so forth. And so they started planning some, you know, some company visits. And the first company visit, we were planning to go somewhere. I don't even remember where, but they um, had a reminder, which was to bring your um, steel-toed boots and your hard hat. And I honestly was like, what What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I'm going to wear a, a hard hat to work? <laughs> I just had no idea. Um, and so I... Um, so, uh, I mean, long story short, there's a lot of wonderful things you can do with chemical engineering. I think I fa- uh, imagined I would build a makeup line or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, what I found was that the majority of, you know, of, of career, you know, options coming out of that program, you know, seemed to be oriented around oil and gas. And I just couldn't have cared less. And so I actually um, gave up all of my scholarships, which I, you know, to, from a financial needs standpoint, really needed. Um and I um, and I quit my uh, left my major without knowing what I would do next. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, I went and found a, a part time job in the Daily Texan, which was the campus newspaper. And that was to go do tech support for Internet support, com- uh, Internet um, service providers. And so this was 1998 huh. and um, the job paid ten dollars an hour. So I was, you know, with wow. double minimum wage or whatever. Dang, yeah. And so, you know, you would sit on the line in a headset in a long row of people in a call center and um, customers would call in because they couldn't get on the Internet. And so Mm -hmm. you'd walk them through reinstalling their modem drivers or help them figure out the difference between turning on and off their monitor and turning on and off the box underneath (laughs) the desk. Um, yeah, yeah more than, more than, I did just enough of that to dramatically sympathize. Like, oh goodness, there's yeah. the joke about the mouse. It's not a foot pedal like your sewing machine. That kind of stuff. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the cup holder. Why won't the printer work? Well, because it's out of paper, mm-hmm. and it's not plugged in either or turned on. Um, so, I mean, I mean, honestly, when you think about it, like it was so complex to use Mm -hmm. computers at that stage, but it was already clear enough that there was so much value to it that these grandparents in rural communities were like going to these great lengths to get online. Um, And uh, which, you know, in retrospect is pretty amazing. Um, um, What was that like though? When you were, when you were in this, you know, in this tech support group, were there a lot of women there or is it mostly men also? There were not a lot of women there. There were a few and I, and they were, they were badasses. Like they were, you know, full grown women adults who, um, you know, who like had, you know, cool hair and lived in Austin <laughs> as adults. And Didn't have to wear a hard hat over their cool hair. No. Um, <laughs> instead, every once in a while, somebody would like make it big. Like they would leave our tech support job and go work someplace like Macromedia in San Francisco. Mm. And so it actually, you know, I mean, I took this as a part-time job to cover the gap because I gave up my scholarships, but it really ended up being um, the starting point of my career because I got exposed to um, people who were making a living in this tech world. Uh, And then some, and then, you know, there were just really interesting people there. So you guys probably know the, um, the, the production company Rooster Teeth that started with making red versus mm-hmm. blue. So that, those were my friends. Like we worked together <laughs> and hung out together and watched public access television. And, you know, I was having this very traditional on-campus experience at UT at University of Texas um, and, and, you know, going through my schoolwork and deciding what to major in. But in, in my evenings and weekends, I was having this experience with, um, you know, with folks that were, um, that maybe weren't in college or didn't even go to college, but uh, we're having, um, you know, we're building these careers in tech and really at the intersection of sort of tech and like pop culture too. And, um, and so it was very, it was, it was actually incredibly, um, um, you know, formative for me yeah. to have that experience. That sounds awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
It was really awesome. It was really, it was like, it was so fun to leave campus. And even though I had a great experience there to like leave the like frat houses and sorority houses and all that sort of stuff and then drive across Austin to like an industrial area and park in the parking lot and go in and have this other group of friends that were having like have having a very different life experience. Yeah. I mean, most of whom were older building the media um, companies of the internet. Wow. Yeah. Building the internet. I mean, we actually had an early, early, um, I, I was, um, a, a, um, sometimes writer on uh, one of our early websites called ugly internet, where we literally just reviewed other people's websites, like in not in a nice way. Um, <laughs> and, um, but it was like, it was fun. I don't know. The internet was small then. Um, and yeah, so it happened. I um, yeah, you, I mean, certainly you guys do. So yeah, it was like, a, it was a, it was kind of a, it was like being led into this, this, the secret club or something. All right. And then so, what happened? Yeah. And then what happened? Well, so what happened is I realized that if I taught myself to code, I could um, basically build the training modules because I mean, this is before there were like, you know, CMSs and like, you know, content repositories for this sort of stuff. I mean, this is long before I, you know, uh, you know, people would have just probably made a Google Doc or something uh, with the scripts for various um, for various um, you know, problems that customers needed triaged. So instead, I taught myself to code literally like a notepad. I read I read an HTML book over the Christmas break, and I came back and uh, basically got them to let me start building out the training modules. Um, so that I didn't have to sit on the phone with customers. And so that's how I learned um, to code. And, and that was in part just because that work can be really miserable. But also, I will say one out of every five calls, the person on the other end of the line would say, no, I was calling for tech support. And I was like, no, this is tech support. And they're like, well, I just feel more comfortable talking to a man. Uh, oh, so, yeah. You know, <laughs> it was just like, you do that a couple of times. And at some point, you're going to scream at the customer. And that's not good for anybody. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, so I, so I taught myself to code to sort of like fire myself from that job and which has been a common theme in, in my career, sort of um, firing myself from various jobs. Well, so then you, you teach yourself to code while wearing, uh, steel toed boots and a hard hat. I'm assuming that you're still, <laughs> still doing this during tech support. Um, so, so how did you move? Like, did you, did you teach yourself to code and then your next job was software development? No. So I taught myself to code and then I changed my major at school to management information systems, which was a, um, uh, a major that really sat at the intersection of business and technology. And so there was you know, a handful of coding classes that you took, um, mostly on Microsoft technologies, um, rather than learning like, you know, computer science um, fundamentals. Um, and then um, pa- that was paired with, you know, classes in finance and accounting and marketing and so forth. And so it was a really great fit for me. And so um, it was, you know, it was, it was hmm. a, a major called business honors, the business honors program. And I, and I uh, focused on management information systems. And so I finished my degree um, throughout my, you know, throughout college, I worked at a couple of, I did a, a couple of internships. Um, one of those internships actually turned into me doing um, part-time uh, contract work. Uh, for 3M. And so I'd worked there in the summer and I was building, the, mm. you know, these software tools. And so they hired me to stay on um, during, and, and come work there, you know, part-time during my senior year and which was great. And it was like, you know, the most, you know, the most money I'd ever made in my, in my entire life. I like started to realize, oh, this coding thing has like some real, you know, really opened <laughs> some doors. And so, um, and so yeah. I graduated, um, I graduated early. I graduated, um, uh, December of 2001. And so I was coming out of school, um, you know, right. Uh, I mean, I'd been in school during like the heyday when, you know, I was seeing the seniors go off and work, work at Trilogy and go to these places where, you know, you start with like a brand new car and, you know, a huge cash bonus and just like, you know, it was, it was like the really heady times. And then it all really kind of unraveled, um, you know, during right right there at the tail end of, of my time at UT, um, with nine eleven happening, um, you know, uh, on you know the third second or third week of school of my last semester, um, with um, uh, I'd been interviewing with Enron actually because they were a big hirer and they did some really interesting weather derivative stuff that I thought sounded cool, um, and they hired a lot of technologists huh. and I was interviewing with them literally at the same time that the headline that the front page of every newspaper was just like plastered with mm-hmm. everything that was going on inside Enron, which was just a very strange experience to be just old enough to realize that the people interviewing you probably weren't going to have jobs the next week and, and how strange it was that we were all <laughs> going through the motions. Um, 
And so long story short, um, I, uh, I, uh, I, I, I was, I was fortunate and I had, um, I found an opportunity, a full-time opportunity coming out of school, uh, and went to work for Intel in, um, Portland, outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, I didn't intend to go to Portland, Oregon. I intended to go to San Francisco, but the Santa Clara interviews got canceled because they were really pulling back on hiring. And the one place they were hiring was Portland. So I figured I'd just, you know, live in Portland and drive down the road to San Francisco on the weekends because I hadn't looked at a map. Um, So I ended up in Portland and was kind of surprised that it was so far away um, from where I'd intended to It's a hell of a drive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and then Intel was actually doing software development as well? So it was internal systems. So I was building, um, so I was actually working on like e- ERP systems like SAP and Ariba and building out internal reporting tools that were used for a variety of purposes that I didn't really understand and can barely remember. Um, and it was, it was terribly boring and, you know, and I, that's no disrespect to Intel, but the, the work itself, you know, I was, I was building these internal tools on top of, you know, these, um, you know, proprietary platforms. Um, and I just felt, you know, I was 21 years old. You know, and I was just like, where am I? Is this um, all there so, is? <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, this yeah. is different than I expected. And so I, um, so basically that at the end of that year, 2002, um, they did a voluntary severance package. Um, and so you could just be, and I was like, wait, so may, make sure I understand this. So I've worked here five months. And I can sign on a dotted line and you will pay me to leave this job. And so I was like stoked. So I (laughs) I took that package and I moved back to Texas and I moved um, back to Texas really because I have a sister who's nine years younger than me. And we are so far apart in age that we kind of didn't really know each other. And so I wanted to... (laughs) Um, go back to Dallas, be closer to my family. And I had an in um, from one of my internships. I knew somebody who had gone to work for Travelocity. And so I called up that friend, Kara, and um, she got me an interview there um, as actually as a product manager. Um, and I insisted they let me interview to be an engineer because I felt like I really want to understand how the software gets built. And so even though I didn't have a CS degree and I'd been doing, so I hadn't been built, you know, sort of building production, um, you know, doing production product engineering, I, I did the interview and I got the job and joined Travelocity um, as my, you know, as, as sort of my first software engineering role in, um, you know, wor- working on a product that I could show my friends and family. Wow. And what part of the product did you work on? Well, so so that was interesting. So Travelocity powered the travel tabs for both Yahoo and AOL at that point, as well as a handful of other places. Like sometimes they they would power the hotels tab on an airline site or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so so it was called Travelocity Partner Network. And it was basically like a co-branded or white label solution where, you know, when you were when you were when you went to the the travel tab on Yahoo, you were literally using Travelocity. um, and so, um, so in my first week, they said, "Hey, you seem like you could probably talk to people." And so <laughs> they um, immediately started having me be the primary point of contact with Yahoo and um, and AOL and some of the other partners. And I just loved that because I would get to, you know, on a quarterly basis, I would get to fly out and go to the Sunnyvale campus and see, like, you know, the the hot you know internet company of the time. Um, you know, when Yahoo would put travel as one of the six buttons on the top back in those days, if you remember the six buttons, if they put travel yeah. up there, um, I would walk into the office in Dallas, you know, at 8 a.m. or whatever, see that um, and immediately run across the floor to our head of ops to let them know that the site was about to come down because they would oftentimes not give us advance warning and the traffic from those sites was so much greater <laughs> than our organic traffic that if we were unprepared, um, the service just, you know, couldn't stand yeah. up. And the cloud um, wasn't really a thing then, so no, really, <laughs> not scalable. No, no, somebody was racking servers or something. So yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, um, it, it, so so it was awesome. So I got to be an engineer, but I also got to sit at the intersection of uh, these partnerships. But also, I started asking questions, which is ultimately what led to me moving into product management. Um, I was asked to code um, some of these, uh, basically a, a, a beacon or a, a tag that was doing a callback to Yahoo so that they could basically audit whether or not we were paying them for the rev share. And so there was a deal where if the traffic came from Yahoo, 
um, even if it wasn't on Yahoo Travel, but it was basically referred from Yahoo that they would get a cut. And as I was starting to, you know, code this, I started asking about sort of the business rules. And the more I asked about it, I just was scratching my head and like, this seems like a bad deal for us. Um, you know, everybody goes to Yahoo. So if Yahoo gets credit for any of our customers that go to Yahoo, well, then they just get credit for everything. And, and, and you know, the folks that were not technical, but that had done the deal, I think, you know, there was this, these were the early days of like, you know, attribution and that sort of stuff. And so everybody was just figuring just it out. It. Um, but that's what led me to start to be more interested in the product and the business side of things was realizing that as an engineer, I was affecting business decisions with the code I write, wrote. And I wanted them to be you know, I wanted to make sure I got it right, but also um, it felt like there was a real disconnect between understanding what was going on in the code and what was going on on the paper, on you know the legal paper for these deals. And um, I got really interested at being uh, in the idea of being the bridge between the two. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. And so you stuck around in product management for a while. Yeah, I did stick around in product management. So I was, um, so it was funny about my transition into product. And, and one of the things I get asked about most often from, from, you know, early in their career is, you know, people that want to make the transition into product. And the truth is that product management changes, uh, like as a function, it sort of globally changes. I think like every five years, it becomes a different job. The criteria for what makes a good product manager kind of evolve, um, uh, and and I have theories on the reasons for all of that, but um, but then it, even company to company, um, it can be quite different. Yeah. So when I first wanted first raised my hand and said I want to I want to become a product manager, um, the feedback I got was, well, you really need an MBA um, to be a product manager. I was like, huh. Okay, well, um, I will go apply to business school then. And I did. Um, and then, um, and then you know, I got in and then suddenly they're like, no, you can go ahead and be a product manager. And I'm like, okay, well, now I'm a product manager, but I got into business school. So I'm going to go ahead and go to business school. And so I, I went off to, to business school, moved to the Bay Area, went to, went to Haas, um, the, the business school at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, and while I was in school, um, Google came on the scene. And so Google became, you know, Google was already, you know, uh, well established at that point, had, uh, I think, gone public the year before I went to business school. But suddenly every MBA wanted or a lot, you know, an increased number of MBAs wanted to work in tech. And so when I was interviewing to work at Google my second year of business school, I was, you know, I was like, I used to be an engineer. I have been a product manager before. And so I was going through the interview process and it was very, very competitive. You know, it was like lots of people in my class would interview for a small number of slots. And then, you know, I don't know what what the numbers were, but let's say like 60 people interviewed and then like six people got offers or something like that. And so it was super competitive, but it was a very, Haas is such a lovely collaborative community that, you know, one person would walk out of the interview room and then would tell the next people like, here's what you need to be prepared for. So it wasn't like cutthroat, but it just was, you know, it was the matter of the fact that it was very it was there just were a limited number of slots as compared to the number of people that wanted to work there but long story short my um role at my role at google was not in product management it was in an adjacent role that actually it it um incorporated a lot of the same work that you do as a product manager but it was not called product manager and it sat in a um ultimately a technical business organization um that was more of a partner engineering um um, sort of organization it was a program management role and the reason for that was because oh, I couldn't yeah. be a product manager at Google because I didn't have a CS degree from, you know, when I was an undergrad. And so it was so interesting to me that it was like, you know, the, in 2003, it was like, you need an MBA. And then I get my MBA and I come out and they're like, oh, no, you, you need a CS degree. And you should have that CS degree 10 years ago, actually. Um, and, so, yeah. you know, and, and I think that's that's kind of the way that product is because it is sort of this amorphous thing. Nobody gets born a product manager. There's not a product management degree. And so the goalposts can kind of change on that. So I have throughout my career, I've done product, but I've also done a lot of adjacent things, including program management, including leading marketing teams, including leading business development teams. Um, And, you know, I've come back around to product being kind of my major, um, but all of those things really support me that the kind of product management I like to do and the type of leader I like to be. Um, but they weren't because I necessarily always chose to do that. Um, at times they were sort of, uh, you know, they were out of survival um, to sort of stay sort of close to close to what you know how to do when, when the, when the goalposts keep changing. 
Yeah, all the requirements are changing. And at what point, so I think that having those kinds of experiences, and I was in one of our most recent guests was talking through like all the different roles they've had and how they're learning about different aspects of the business. Obviously, it sounds like having all that kind of experience makes it much easier for you to lead people who have those roles when you're higher up in a larger company. You have some context for what other people are doing. Have, have you found that to be, uh, you know, a useful situation? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, in retrospect, um, I, you know, I'm so grateful that I had those uh, adjacent opportunities because if I'd, you know, if I'd kind of been minted directly in one single mode, then, um, then I don't think that the opportunity to do things like, you know, um, you know, take on a product marketing organization for some period of time when it's in need of a leader and you kind of like, you know, keep the organization and, and help them, you know, improve and, and, and also play a role in helping find the right leader for them. Like being able to like kind of be that utility player that can step in to lead various functions and let alone also just um, be able to hire. Um, I mean, especially once you get to the exec team level, so much of what you're doing is trying to build the best team of execs you can around you. And if you have no awareness or empathy for what that job is, you, you have very little ability to actually evaluate candidates. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So then, I, I mean, I'm curious, you, you need an MBA to do this, and then you need a computer science degree to do this. I mean, if you're talking to someone who wants to get into product management, would you give them the same advice? Hey, you really need an MBA and a CS degree? Or would you say, hey, it's it's really about getting that first gig and starting to get some experience in it or go read these two books or, you know, what would you tell somebody like, what was that accurate advice? Did you need the MBA? Did you need the CS degree? Or were those just kind of helpful things that weren't necessarily necessary? Yeah, I mean, I think they absolutely helped. And I think if you're in a stage of your life where those decisions are still ahead of you and you you can either do them or not, or you can either choose CS or choose not CS, then, you know, I mean, there's there's upside in choosing sort of the obvious, making the obvious choice um, that is just going to remove any sort of barriers um, to you in your product career. But sure. I would, but, but what I advise people, because I'm more often talking to people where those decisions are already behind them. And, you know, do I advise people to like go back and get another undergraduate degree? Like, definitely not. Um, no. I mean, and, <laughs> What a what a luxury if you have the, if you have the ability to do that, but most people don't. So um, so instead, um, so you know, ultimately, like I said, nobody's born a product manager, and so I see people come to product management from three different paths. One is the functional path, like they just like they checked the boxes, they like did the CS, and then they did engineering, and maybe they maybe they took some product design classes, you know, um, maybe they went to a, you know, really top tier university. Like that's, you know, very much the the functional path where you've just sort of like, you've proven you have the skill set, And then over time, you know, you just, you do the work and then you do more of the work and, and, and you know, your role gets bigger and bigger. Um, secondly, as uh, I think that you can, you can come to this um, uh, with, um, with having had experience in adjacent roles, but similar, um, sim- similar problem space. And so you can, you know, you can come at it with having, um, uh, you know, been in product marketing or been uh, in design or been in engineering or even been on the business side. But if you decide to make the transition from, uh, you know, from uh, a company, I, I think of a guy I know that was, a, he was a lawyer and he really wanted to make the transition into product management. So the company he went to work for was a company that built products for lawyers. And I think that, you know, I, so I think that, you know, that that's another way to, to thread yeah. the needle. The actual industry knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is hugely important. It could be subject matter. It'd be having worked on a, you know, I, I think sometimes I see folks that maybe worked in ops roles at a place like Twitter. Um, they, yeah. they, you know, maybe they worked in an ops role either on the user or the ad side. Well, if they're going to go work somewhere else that um, is maybe an earlier stage company that uh, is building a product that has many of the similar problems, then then I think they can, I, I see people make the leap in that way as well. Yeah, interesting. And the third is found a company. I mean, you can, I mean, if you found, if you found a company, if you build something from scratch um, and it's good, then you can, um, you know, prove yourself as being a product thinker. I think oftentimes those founders actually have to really learn the ropes of what it means to be a product manager within an organization. Um, but that's certainly another path um, that plenty of people follow. And it is one where, you know, you're not, you're not, you don't have to wait for anybody else to give you permission, um, which has some upside. Yeah. 
Do you often end up, I mean, this is, this is a classic, like, you know, startup exec who's not had other kinds of experience and unless they're willing to, to be, you know, vulnerable about the things that they don't know and try to learn them as their company grows, it can turn into a complete disaster in terms of their leadership, yeah, right? Absolutely. Having, having that, having that experience in the product and, and knowing what you want to build can, you know, is great for just the product, but there's a lot of wider scaled skills that you need to acquire. And how did you, how did you acquire the, the leadership skills that you needed to, to move on and up in that organization? Yeah, I mean, um, this is where I think having actually that business undergraduate degree, um, let alone the MBA later, later, what was helpful just in that I had that, that, you know, a bit of a broader functional purview. Um, I mean, I, leadership, I mean, I think leadership certainly goes back to like, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, I've always, um, I've always felt a compulsion to help people and to want to, um, um, kind of put forth a vision and, and turn it into reality um, by, you know, rallying other people to, to follow along. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I got a lot of leadership opportunities through my, you know, I went to public, I've gone to public schooling all the way throughout um, uh, from, you know, from my earliest days, uh, past preschool, um, uh, after preschool, it's been all public <laughs> school, but I, you know, I had incredible opportunities to be a leader in things like the orchestra and the marching band and academic decathlon and things like that. So, yeah. you know, and, and then on through college. And so, you know, I've always had a bit of a, an addiction to putting myself in a position of being responsible <laughs> for others. Um, and, um, and, and so, so that came along the way. Um, my first management experience though came only nine years ago um, when I joined Twitter, when, um, you know, I, I'd been a, a leader um, and even sort of dotted line manager for various groups within companies like Google and Travelocity because so much of product management just is leadership. Um yeah. But but yeah. it was it was when I joined a, a high growth startup when I joined a company where new people were showing up every week that that's where the management opportunity came in and came very quickly um, and grew. Uh huh. And did they train you at that point to to be a manager? And and I ask this a lot. Like most of the time, you hear the answer no. You just learned on the job. Is that what it was like at Twitter? Uh, I would say it's mostly, mostly learning on the job. Um, uh, we did at some point after I became a manager, um, probably a year or two later, um, started doing some management training within, within Twitter. I actually got to sit in the first class and, um, Dick, our then CEO, uh, actually led the first class himself. And oh. so, um, it, and it was a one day thing. Um, you know, one thing that was really great about having worked at Google for a few years from 2007 to 2009, before I joined Twitter was that, um, was that at Google, it was, it was almost like still being in college. Like you could go take any sort of training class. Like if I wanted to go take classes on ML, I could have, and they did have management um, training classes. So I actually took management training classes uh-huh. at, at Google, even though I didn't have um, people directly reporting to me because I had this large organization, you know, like 30 people globally that I was, re- um, for whom I was responsible um, as a program manager. So I took some of that stuff then and I, and I found that to be really useful. I think Google, you know, for uh, was was really pretty far ahead in um, sort of training cur- curriculum and just um, it has I don't know if it still does, but back then had very much of an academic kind of culture, and so yeah. um, so I was lucky to be able to sort of do that stuff. I didn't actually get to put much of it in pro- pro- and uh, practice for a few years later. Uh-huh. And wow. then you you went through, you know, you, you went through several you know pretty high profile gigs uh, ultimately, and um, and. Now you're you're in investment, and I imagine that's like there's a different kind of leadership there. Can you tell you talk a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think that um, you know, as an investor, there's a handful of different things that you're doing that um, pull upon leadership experience. Um, one is that you know you're tapping back into your ability to evaluate people um, and and their abilities in a pretty short amount of time. Um, and, you know, because, you you know, as an angel investor, you're probably going to spend, you know, an hour, maybe a couple of hours with somebody over the course of a week or two. And if a deal is really hot and you're getting pulled in kind of at the last minute, like, hey, there's a little bit more room here, you may talk to the person for the founder for 30 minutes. Yeah. So, so having that ability um, so the, to tell like the quick evaluation. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I didn't, carry on. 
No, no, totally. I mean, and right or wrong. I mean, that that's a thing when it is a cursor, when it is a quick evaluation, you're going to make mistakes, which is why, you know, it's, which is why investors build portfolios. Yeah, um, yeah, you're going to make mistakes in both directions. But uh, but I do think that for me, that experience of having hired so many people between Twitter and Slack, um, you know, so that that's one piece. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then, you know, I think the, um, you know, there's also a lot of coaching that goes into investing. Um, you know, every founder is different, but some founders really are hungry for um, and in times of sort of crisis need um, that coaching. And so the experience of have, of helping, um, you know, guide people through, um, through tough times and, um, particularly like managing managers, which is something that I, that I did, um, during my three and a half years at Slack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, so that comes into play. And then thirdly is sort of the aspect of leadership, which is to sort of look up and outside the four walls of any given organization, which is, you know, I seeing the connections either between companies, seeing the opportunities for companies out in industry and out in terms of how they're going to present themselves as, um, you know, like what's that company's identity? Like what kinds of, you know, people are they going to draw to work for them? Um, these are a lot of the things that you think about when you sit at like the exec team level of an organization. And these are skills that these, that founders have to develop if they don't already have that experience. And so, uh, being able to impart some of that, or even actually like help facilitate some of that, um, opportunistic, um, sort of outreach and, um, consideration of things like company culture is something that, um, that I and the rest of my partners with hashtag angels like to bring to the, to the founders that we back. When you're evaluating these companies that you're investing in, uh, I mean, are you, what percentage of it is, Hey, I think this product is kick ass and there's a market for it, whether you're the right people or not, or I think you're the right people, whether I think this product is the right product or not, or I think you're the people who can figure out the product because you have the product experience or just like, what, how are you evaluating some of those things? Do you, do you feel very strongly you invest in the people or you don't really care who the people are if it's the right market in some situations or how, how does that sort of fit when you're evaluating these folks? Yeah, I mean, I focus very much on the people, um, and you know, it, it to some extent, I probably even have a bias towards people who bring, um, you know, real bring operating experience to their to their to the thing that they're doing. So, you know, when I when I see a founder who has worked within a larger organization, been successful in a larger organization, and is now stepping out and and looking to start and build something from scratch, that is something that I find um, attractive in a founder. And everybody's different. I mean, some people are like, no, I just want to find that like student coming straight out of school with a brilliant idea and like their finger on the pulse and like they'll figure it out or maybe they won't but I like that's a, a risk a risk that I'm willing to take uh, I invest um you know I invest in a few different categories these days um I invest in enterprise software I invest in some amount of um uh like infrastructure and developer facing products because I've worked on a lot of platforms and I like those products uh, and then increasingly I'm investing in companies that are focused on reversing climate change and so for the first two, it's like, I know those spaces, I've worked in them. So when I see somebody that has a great track record and then has identified a market opportunity that seems big, then I'm not that worried about the product to itself to some extent, because I believe that they have the agility to be able to connect the dots between their experience and opportunity. When I look at this new space for me, climate change reversal, I, I it, it's quite different because I don't have, you know, I don't come from having worked in that space for the last 20 years. Um, and, um, it, and, and also it's a little, the math is a little bit different because it's like if there, if there is a concrete product idea that will make a positive impact uh, on the environment and has a real business opportunity, then, then, you know, then I may be able to get comfortable Mm. with the fact that maybe the founders um, don't have a lot of experience or just that I don't, I don't know any, I don't know anybody who even knows the founders because they're coming from a very different world. Mm -hmm. So as I, as I venture into this new space, I'm having to let go of sort of my security blanket, which is being able to back people um, that I know or where I'm very easily able to back channel their track records um, and instead embrace, you know, potentially a whole new set of founders that who have some expertise and like real passion and commitment um, to, you know, and, and a vision for what they're going to build. 
Wow. And it also seems like this particular area, it's worth taking a greater risk just because of the, you know, the critical situation. So yeah. I'm sure that helps you with like, well, let's, let's see, how much do I know about this? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Right. Did you find that your background, your early background in chemical yeah. engineering has anything to, to help you for, with this at all? Um, unfortunately, no, I wouldn't <laughs> think so. Although I, you know, maybe I'll cite it in a couple of pitches if I really want a founder to, um, you know, mm-hmm. to let, let me participate. I'll be like, you know, I was a chemical engineering major for eight weeks. Yeah. Back um, in the day. I didn't like the hats. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the hats. Did you like the hats? Um, so, um, so anyway, yeah, no, no, I wouldn't say so. Although um, for me, this has been a little bit kind of similar to computers in the first place. This has been a little bit of a latent interest area for me. You know, I mean, I, I cited, you know, the, my interest in working at Enron, which actually really was focused on their weather derivatives project uh, products. And while I don't expect that Enron was on a path to do that in like a um, environmentally positive way. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've always, I've always been pretty intrigued by um, specifically the weather um, because I grew up in tornado alley and I, you know, as a little girl, I thought maybe I would be like a meteorologist or I probably use the phrase weather girl because I'm pretty sure that's what they were (laughs) called in those days. Um, And, um, and then, and then actually, you know, one, one stint that I haven't mentioned that, that is slotted in between Google and Twitter, um, was that I worked at a company called Climate Corp that was building weather, um, risk management products, um, for a couple of different verticals and ultimately really honed in on agriculture, um, uh, and, and ended up, um, being acquired by Monsanto. So that the reason I went to that company was because I was like, Oh, yeah, I remember that thing I saw at Enron all those years ago, maybe this is like a new way to do it. And they in, you know, great team focused on um, the fact that, you know, climate is changing. And so this seems timely. So I went there um, and learned a lot about, you know, what it's like to work in a 20 person startup. And then ultimately was having a great time, but got uh, lured away by um, the opportunity to work on my favorite product in the entire world at that point, which was Twitter. Um, (laughs) It was a short stint, but um, still um, a a valuable one in my path. Cannot believe you made that choice. Cannot believe it. Uh, Sarcasm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, we're we're bumping up on time here pretty quick because this is interesting and we we haven't asked a lot of our normal questions, uh, but that's that's okay. Uh, this is an you have a very interesting background. I mean, you've you've been at a lot of these big, well-known companies. You've had big, important roles in some of these big companies, and I'm just curious, what today has you really excited about what you're doing? Like when you when you look back on this, you know, you you've been CPO of Slack, right? Uh, what's more exciting about what you're doing today than running product at Twitter or at Slack or working at Google or, you know, these, all these things that you've had in your background, what has you really excited today? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, today it really is the opportunity, um, and the, the, the freedom. I mean, what a huge luxury, um, to be able to, to dive in on an area that feels incredibly important, both in, uh, in terms of purpose, um, but also um, timely because I think that um, I believe that consumer attitudes towards um, the importance of climate are shifting and particularly amongst um, younger folks, Gen Z and so forth. So, um, so, you know, I mean, when I first started working in social and, you know, when we all started in tech at various different stages, that, that feeling you get where you meet other people who see what you see and they, and it's so exciting um, that other people are, are kind of honing in on this thing that seems a little bit off the beaten path. It's not the most obvious um, thing to do. Um, similar to me deciding to go work at a tech support company when I was a freshman in, in college on, on campus at the University of Texas. Um, and, and there's something about um, this space right now that for me has that, um, that kind of bubbly feeling, not bubbly in the tech bubble that's going to burst sense, but instead the sense where like it's starting to simmer, like you're seeing other yeah. people that are excited Something's about what you're excited happen. about. Yeah, I feel that. And, you know, it's a bet to take. Um, but, um, but that gets me excited. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the team at Slack, I mean, the opportunity to be part of Slack over the last three and a half years um, was was just completely unparalleled. I mean, um, you know, joining there at 150 people, um, 
being there to 1500, you know, I, I joined there as head of platform, could not have predicted that I would go on to run product and ultimately, ultimately be CPO and, and, you know, only, uh, you know, stayed up to a point where I was able to hand the baton to somebody else right before the company went through the inevitable, you know, cultural transformation that happens when a company goes from being private to public. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, opportunity of a lifetime, Stuart gave me a ton of leash and um, and gave me the opportunity to, to do a bunch of things I'd never done before. I mean, I described my time at Slack as like every single day I was doing like four things I'd never done before over and over again, you know, nonstop for three and a half years. And I and, and I loved that. Um, so I miss that um, in that, like, just you can feel yourself growing every day. Um, but mm-hmm. um, but that excitement is being replaced by um, the opportunity to, to, to work with founders that are starting their own journeys like that and sure. um, doing so in an area uh, that feels really, really damned important for me and my family and my kid and everybody else's kids and so on and so on. Uh, I want to I want to ask one question. You've talked about this a little bit already, but uh, in that you were pretty comfortable being in leadership roles when you were younger. Um, how do you feel about having authority over people like when you're liter- when you are their manager, when you are directing from a higher level? How do you address that that amount of power? Yeah, I mean, I feel an enormous sense of responsibility um, that comes with it. And, you know, um, you know, for me, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was not that long ago that I, you know, managed my first person. I remember walking down the street um, in 2010 after um, having just been made a manager. And I think I started with a team of two or three people. And I was walking down the street. I had to go run an errand, and um, I got an email, and 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 the email was one of my direct reports pushing something forward. And I had this moment of like, oh my god, this is a superpower! Like I'm going to the eye doctor, but work is still happening. And that <laughs> like that moment where you realize that like the forward progress of the things for which you're responsible for is no longer limited by your own literal available availability and how many hours you're, you're willing to put in on in a given week for me, it was just so mind blowing. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about management is it's like, it's, it is playing, you know, it's playing the game and at, at a mode where you've, you do have these, these amazing powers. Um, but then there is also the power that you have over people and my own relationship with authority, which I know you sometimes ask about is one that I'm still working to reconcile. I don't love it. Um, I don't, you know, I've worked for some amazing people and yet I don't, I don't really love having managers. And so I, um, so from that place, I don't, you know, I, I sort of expect the folks that work for me to hold me to an incredibly high bar. And I have awareness that the things that I do can really impact not only their forward progress in the workplace, but can go home with them. And so, you know, I mean, that, that's a lot, that's a, that, that is a big responsibility. And I think that, um, folks with maybe less empathy probably don't feel that as acutely. And in some ways I'm envious of them for it. Yeah. (laughs) That is an interesting perspective. Like not, not knowing sometimes is better, right? It's yeah. yeah, And I like that, that, you know, you, you also see it as, you know, it's a force multiplier. If you have people doing work for you, you get more done. That's a great feeling. Um, But at the same time, if you are not, super happy about having people tell you what to do. A lot of a lot of leaders don't transfer that understanding of their lack of comfortableness with having people tell them what to do into how people feel about reporting to them. Like they think, oh well I'm the boss. They should just do what I say. Like it, it yeah. goes both ways. <laughs> so that's the that's the level of uh, of empathy that you're talking about, right? Like it applies to me and it also applies to my team. Yeah. Well, I've always, you know, um, some people use the phrase servant leadership, but I, like, I just have always really approached it as thinking that the people that choose to work for me or in my organization or at my company, they have given, they have, they have um, made like the biggest vote of, of, of confidence and trust mm-hmm. and also um, are giving up their most precious resource, their time and their optionality that they could be doing something else. Um, in service of that company. And so, um, so, you know, and I think some leaders have the model flip. They're like, I have given you this job. And, and like, Mm -hmm. by in doing so, I have given you a gift. And and the reality is, of course, that it's both. But, um, but, you know, my my default is to come from the place of of focusing on the fact that, um, that, um, especially working in the tech, 
um, sector in the Bay Area. People have many options when they choose to fly. And if they choose to work at your company, um, that, uh, that there's a real sense of responsibility that you owe to them. And that doesn't mean like they get everything they want or that they're always going to like every decision. It instead means that, um, that there's an incredible responsible responsibility on leaders to be able to, um, set a culture and um, create an environment that um, allows people to work from, you know, to do their best work, to work from a place of, um, you know, freedom from fear um, uh, that allows them to um, have the confidence that if they turn out to not be the right person for the organization, or if the organization starts to take a turn in the wrong direction, that it won't be a surprise. And that, um, that, you know, the, the humans that have the most ability to take care of them will, um, step up to the plate to do so. Yeah, that is huge. The communication for sure. I mean, the other piece there is you can just offer people a credit card and lots of bonus miles to work at your company. And then you don't have to be a good leader. You can just, you know, (laughs) loyalty that way uh yeah, totally works. Whole, that works for a very yeah, short amount of time people have lots of different options when they fly yeah it has my head spinning on that yeah option. yeah that's a that's a good point um just offer a really nice lounge or something <laughs> I, I think that is actually the strategy in some instances we it should totally we should follow is. this metaphor and see how far it can go yeah well <laughs> if there's foosball uh yeah. then people are going to stay happy. whether or not they're good leaders that's right <laughs> now we know how to keep Kendall happy all right we are totally <laughs> running up a time but i i want to ask you just a quick question like you you focus a lot on on your uh on your your project at the moment and your interests uh in um climate change and and working on products for that but what are your hobbies outside of work do you have time for hobbies given that you yours have so much going on Absolutely. I have time for hobbies. Um, so my, um, I would say my number one hobby is hiking. Um, and my husband and I have, and have the ambition to try to hike all of the marked trails in the County of Marin. And so every once in a while I will post a video of highlighting the the, the ground we cover on the map on Twitter. My Twitter handle is a under. Um, and so, um, so we, yeah, I mean, we've been at this for like a year and a half ish. Wow. Uh, I think it will take us 10 to 20 years at the current rate because Marin County is just um, uh, such a wonderful place to live if you like hiking. Um, but I'm really enjoying that um, and, and kind of forcing ourselves to get outside of just our, our you know, our, our favorite routes and, oh. uh, and try new stuff. How many miles total so far? That's a great question. I I don't know the total offhand, but I would guesstimate um, probably like fifty miles, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, me, (laughs) yeah, when you're doing it like in two to three, two to four mile chunks, Uh and um, and my husband is carrying our our toddler who is getting um, heavier and heavier, so um, uh, you know, I'm I'm always I take my kids out hiking a lot, and I'm always uh, I'm watching these families that are hiking with their kids and the kids half asleep or, or completely asleep in some baby carrier. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's more impressive to me than taking your kids hiking, <laughs> just screaming at them when they complain, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll get there in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I wanted to ask you one more question. You did mention that you could be found at A Under on Twitter. Is there anywhere else people should look for you on the internet? Nah, that's the best place. That's good. <laughs> Okay. Awesome. (laughs) Okay. Well, Well, thanks thanks again. Yeah, this was great. Awesome. Great to meet you guys. Take care.